Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. Today, my guest is Dr. Jay Faber, and we had an incredible conversation about brain health, traumatic brain injury, ways to heal the brain, childhood trauma. It was a real, a real eye opener and also a real um, important conversation about next steps on what we can do as a society to start examining the brains of the people living in prison, but also examining our own brains. And so I really, I really ad ad advise you to listen to this conversation. At one point of the conversation, we do go into Jay's, Dr. Jay's um, computer and he shows us the spec scan. So if you are listening to this onto a, on a podcast, maybe come back and see what he's talking about and the different parts of the brain and how, how the brain um, has these craters when it's not a healthy brain. So a little bit about Dr. Jay Faber. He's a clinical and forensic psychiatrist, child psychiatrist, and adult psychiatrist at Amen Clinics. He has more than two decades of experience in child psychiatry, adolescent psychiatry, and adult psychiatry, and pharmacological management, treating patients in clinical private practices in Colorado, California, and Georgia. In addition to his work at Amen Clinics, Dr. Faber is president of BrainSource, a corporation founded to teach adolescents how to build successful lives. Since working at the clinic, Dr. Faber has also written a book, Escape, Rehab Your Brain to Stay Out of the Legal System. The book focuses on five areas to help individuals work on implementing disciplines to never return to that system again. Dr. Faber received his Bachelor of Arts degree in biology at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota and an MD from the University of Minnesota. Dr. Faber completed his residency in adult psychiatry and went on to receive a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center in 1991, as well as a fellowship in forensic psychiatry at USC Institute of Psychiatry and Law in 1995. Dr. J. Faber, welcome to Compassion in Action. I'm so excited to have you on our show. Uh, March is Brain Injury Awareness Month, and it's an honor to have you here during March. Oh, Othello, thank you, Fritzi. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to start um, with the incredible statistic that 50 to 80%, sometimes 87% in some of the research that I've seen of men and women in prison have a traumatic brain injury. And yeah. And yeah. so I, if you can talk about what TBI does to the brain and, and some ideas on how we can recover from this or start the recovery. Yeah, I think, you know, and we're just in such budding nuts and phases, but um, so th that static is really important. 50 to 85%. I've heard that there is though, I know seven times higher level of brain injury than out in the real world. And so are these people bad people or do they in essence instead have bad brains? And if they do have a bad brain, should we not be looking like other physical health maladies, ways to help and change them to get back to normal? So um, I know one of the things we're starting to find out is people who have uh, frontal lobe damage to the brain have significant challenges. So, and since I've got it here at home today, I can take it out, but you think of a hit to the head. Anytime we get hit, to the front of our head, okay? We can have decreased perfusion uh, with, with spec scans, um, looking at blood flow where we're getting too much or too little blood flow to the brain. We see a much higher association with lower blood flow to the brain after we've had a big hit to the front. Subsequently, our head goes back 
and the back of our brain can hit our skull. So in, interesting enough, in our office, we've had all these people come in, I, and the best places to look are NFL players, which we've seen probably now about 150. Uh, normal MRIs, normal CAT scans, but they can't remember worth anything. And so we looked at their scans, and all of a sudden we said, oh, my gosh, especially offense and defensive linemen, bumps here, oh, bumps in the back. Um, our prisoners who've been in fights, who've been in you know car accidents, and, and the car accidents, you can put that before the fights, and a lot of these people, a lot of these people haven't had problems before, but if you hit that front of your head and our frontal lobes get damaged, what happens? What happens when we get hits here? People can, one, be much more impulsive in their decision-making. I mean, you think about when we buy a house uh, or get an apartment, you think of all the, 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 the thinking, the reflection, the emotionality that goes into it. It takes a lot of brain power. If this isn't working so well, we're much more impulsive. We make quick, fast decisions. Second, a lot of times our decisions are much uh, less constructive uh, and they can lead to a whole lot of trouble. If we don't look ahead and see the consequences of what's going to happen by making that decision, we're much more likely to get into problems. Uh, the sad part is, my perspective is, uh, these are health problems you don't die from, right? You're still right. talking, you're still communicating. Um, yet, if you can't see the, the differences looking ahead to something that's going to lead to good results versus not so good results, you're going to have problems. And so we see a lot of problems with the frontal lobes. That's just one area. What other areas are there? Well, the other big thing that can happen is our temporal lobes, these two little bumps that stick out, all right? There's a bone called the sphenoid wing. It's part of our skull, sorry for using biological terms, but they call it that, not me. But what it does is it does a great job of protecting our brain, all right? Now, if we get hit really hard, that hard bone hits soft brain mm. and these get bumped, all right? When they get bumped, these don't work as well. What happens when our temporal lobes don't work so well? People get more anxious and nervous, one. People can get more irritable. And third, people can get much more angry, temperamental, lose their temper, all right? Add another layer. If we have frontal lobe problems, our frontal lobes, here and here, they help put the brakes on our temporal lobe. So if we get it upset, we all do this. It's like, hey, is it really worthwhile getting upset? Well, you know, probably not. Let it go. This isn't working well, and these have been hurt. All of a sudden, we're really angry. And we're in this whole other level of just frustration and anger. And the person, they'll tell you, it's like, what's wrong? I can't control this. Um, it's kind of crazy. And um, with that, People are more prone to anger, violence, uh, getting hit, hitting others. So it just leads to a whole cavalcade of problems uh, just because your brain from getting hit isn't working so well. Okay. So some of the things that you were just describing, some of the symptoms you were describing are things that I have experienced as a, as a victim of child abuse. And so does what happened to the brain in child abuse um, present similarly as traumatic brain injury? Well, okay, so child abuse depends on the kind of abuse. 
you've had All right now since we're on the topic of, of childhood and, and you think of um, something you're well aware of adver- adverse child experiences I mean there's lots of new research uh, and some of it's been actually out there longer we're just becoming more aware of it on what happens when a child has an adverse experience what are experiences if you go by some of this great literature right uh, they've got a questionnaire where if you've had 10 things happen you're more at risk uh, for you know, things like emotional problems, all right? Uh, drug abuse problems. I mean, none of this is really a surprise. We'll tell you what the 10 things are in a second. Uh, but then physical problems, high blood pressure, obesity, heart problems. And then to your point, behavioral problems, yes. criminality and things of that nature. So, you know, the, the since childhood, there can be physical abuse where somebody adult hits you. Mm-hmm. Yes. But then there's all sorts of other crazy stuff like uh, emotional abuse. Yes. Sexual abuse. We know these emotional neglect where you're just not paid attention to uh, physical <laughs> neglect where you're not, you know, given food, drink, whatever. But then it gets even crazier. Uh, parents with domestic violence, parents with substance abuse, parents with psychiatric problems themselves, parents who are divorced, uh, and I think there's one more. I uh, family member going to prison. Family member going to prison. So if you've had what four of those ten, you're like what a hundred to a thousand times more likely to have anything from emotional issues to behavioral issues. I mean, it's it's crazy. And, and what's striking is how many of us, and I say us purposefully, as a physician have been through these types of experiences. Um, And and you start counting them up and uh, it's very humbling. Um, I'm above four, I'll be the first to say that. Um, And if you don't do things, right, um, I think on a daily basis to re-circuit your brain, uh, you're just more prone uh, to have problems. Uh, But on the same side, if you do the things that you can do, uh, it's amazing what growth and opportunities can come to, to anybody's way. I have eight adverse childhood experiences. And what I've learned working with people in prison, they'll also have eight adverse childhood experiences. We'll have the same ACEs, but they also have probably another 10 ACEs that we're not even thinking about, like poverty, extreme poverty, um, traumatic brain injury, um, homelessness, foster care, living um living with uh, people that are violent in the home that aren't their parents, things like that. And so my ACEs and your ACEs have nothing to compare to the people in prison, even though we were traumatized as children as well. Um, but it's, it's kind of like, how much can a little baby, little child endure? And so everyone in prison is a victim before they've ever victimized anybody. And um, that's an important piece that I think we forget when we're when we're sentencing people and when we're um, when we're not looking at their brain. Um, I would say everyone in prison has injured brains, TBI or not. Well, I mean, just substance abuse. Eighty-five percent of people in prisons have a substance abuse problem. I mean, and when you think about that, that's that's crazy. I mean, if you put them in substance abuse programs, what would happen to their damaged brains? Um, so, 
Yeah. So I've seen um, specced images of a, of a brain of an alcoholic or a brain of a drug use. And do you see when you help tr treat these brains, do you see the changes in their brains on the spec scan? Yeah, let me, um, in fact, if you want, I could show you a couple pictures if you want. I'd love that. If that would be helpful. Oh, bye -bye. Here we go. Oh, awesome. right, now this person is not a, um, this person is uh, one of my old uh, NFL athletes. Okay, but it, it gives the same points here. Um, this is um, the person's brain when he came in to see him. These pictures, this is looking at our brain just to kind of orientate from the bottom up. Top down, if I can hopefully see both of these. This is our left side, and this is our right side of our brain. Okay. All right. The colors mean nothing. It textures everything. The smoother the surface, the better the blood flow. The more bumps we see, like this, there's less blood flow to those areas. Okay. Where there's less blood flow, that's usually where we have problems. So, for example, here, this is our lower frontal cortex. This is kind of one of the areas we just talked about. This should be all smooth. See all the bumps here? Yes. Yeah. And by the way, this represents blood flow. It doesn't, if I got an MRI or a CAT scan, it will look normal. We're not looking at structure. We're just looking at a representation of blood flow. So people are more prone to be impulsive, not make good decisions. And then if I look at his frontal lobes from about my ear up, look at all these bumps. It should all be like almost like smooth, like a bowling ball for his age. All right. Well, what's his so, age? He's 34 when wow. we got this, 33. So, but you think, and all the bumps yep. here. All right. And then if we just go down his temporal lobes here and here, these should be, they should look like two fluffy cotton balls right here and here. And I don't have a regular picture up, but you can see these aren't fluffy uh, at all. No, no. So here, you know, here. Um, there's lots of decreased blood flow. So now he's got kind of like the double whammy. Uh, anger, predisposition to getting really temperamental and he doesn't have the brakes to put on here. So we've got some real issues, but the bumps are just, I mean, they're all over. These are all where this guy got hit in the head. Look at the back from hitting the AstroTurf. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Now, this guy, when I saw him, he was drinking like a fish and couldn't get out of bed, wasn't working. Uh, we came up with a plan. We put them on some supplements of which the names I won't tell because the names are too long and complicated to remember. Uh, and we did hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy is where you go in and sit in what looks like a big, let's see if I can pull a chamber up. So <laughs> I don't work for this company, so don't think I've got secondary gain. I get nothing for showing this. This is a typical hyperbaric chamber. You unzip this top, jump in, lay down. Oh, you can bring books and computer in here. Oh. Zip this back up, increase oxygen pressure mainly and increase uh, the concentration of oxygen slightly. That will push oxygen across our blood brain barrier, which is hard to get across and start to help rehabilitate mm. these areas. Now, that said, uh, we typically recommend 40 sessions over 50 days and each session lasts about 55 minutes. 
So like I tell people, oh, this sounds wonderful, but you know, but there's always a but with any kind of treatment. The but is one, this is a time commitment and it's usually a cost commitment. Um, and LA sessions can run anywhere from $70 to $300 a session. Um, so you got to kind of look shop and do around and see what you got. But anyhow, we did 40 sessions uh, in the 50 days. A month later, we got another scan of his brain. And here's what it looked like. Wow. Wow. The frontal lobes. I mean, there's still some bumps here, but when you compare it, his temporal lobes, look at his left temporal lobe, his right temporal lobe. He still has some decreased blood flow here. Put the top, the sides from that to that. Now, uh, the second part is, well, okay, so he got more blood flow. What about his quality of life? Last time I, last time I saw him, this was about five years ago, uh, he was working uh, as a pharmaceutical salesperson, working 12-hour days. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, you think of the people who've had head trauma uh, in the prison system, how many have had the opportunity to get this done? Well, that was going to be my question, of course. You know, and should we as a society start to say, hey, um, what do we need to do to start to look at ways to implement this kind of treatment uh, for those individuals who are in prison? You know, if they're going to be, you know, locked up in a cell, would it not make sense to invest in a chamber, which that one I just showed probably runs about $25,000 and let individuals go in there and help rehabilitate their brains so they can go from laying on a couch and not being able to work to and drinking to not drinking and getting a great job. I saw somebody uh, this morning, I talked to attorney of an individual who was stationed in, um, and I'll take this down, who was stationed in uh, the Middle East. Uh, his Jeep ran over an IED, his... Mm-hmm. Um, a rocket went off in his platoon and then he fell 40 feet from a rope on a helicopter and hit the back of his head, came back completely different, hypervigilant, paranoid, probably had some PTSD, Um, but got himself in all sorts of legal trouble. He'd get really paranoid and think people were against him when they weren't against him and ended up physically threatening a couple of people with knives. And so now he's sitting in a, a jail cell awaiting trial. And we're trying to get him into the uh, the legal system uh, with the VA courts. They've got a new, you know, mm-hmm. to try to say, hey, okay, this, let's look at the fact. This guy was normal before he went right. in. He, right. he wasn't somebody, you know, who had all these crazy adverse experiences, which would make it even worse. But um, clearly he served our country and paid a d- deep price. And at some level, do we not owe something to try to help restore his brain? Uh, why we make, you know, society sick, that's understandable, but let's try to balance this out, my perspective. And so how do we get him something like hyperbaric oxygen therapy uh, and in a scan of some sort? And I'm not, we do spec that in our office. I'm not trying to promote that. If someone wants to get a PET scan, they can, they're more expensive uh, to get uh, the fMRIs. I don't think are quite there yet. I think they show us a lot of information, but in terms of traumatic brain injury, I'm not quite sure there as uh, elaborate, but the, do we in 21st century medicine have um, an obligation uh, to ask, hey, are we doing everything we can 
to help these people? Uh, and if not, can we? Uh, you know, and, and to me, implementation, it's all about implementation, the how. Um, you know, we have great ideas and, you know, our TV stations, I don't care which one you pick, find great ways to discuss the ideals of whatever they come. But in terms of the implementation, how do we get, you know, uh, into our boots, take, you know, put on our jeans, roll up our sleeves and figure out a way to see if we can't help some of these people at a completely different level. I agree. I agree. I've been talking to Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He says, bring in biofeedback. Now I'm talking to you and you're saying, bring in a hyperbaric chamber. I mean, what if we did a, a pilot study, raise some money, maybe you can help um, join me in a fundraiser for this and we can raise some money to get a hyperbaric chamber. And maybe you um, can do a few spec, spec scans in the meantime, and we can, we can start proving to the United States, to the to the court systems that these are injured brains. These aren't bad people. And that's what Dr. Amen says. That's what you say. That's what I say. And yeah. No, it's, it's put in our money where our mouth is, you know, and I can tell you, I've been working with a group up in Harenko County in Richmond, Virginia uh, mm -hmm. with, th this is a great story. Um, we, I got called, someone said, can you help us? We came up with an idea and got the, um, the sheriff of Enrico County, the sheriff involved. And we, we set up where um, either myself or Dr. Amen would pay for the scans out of our pockets. And yeah, so, you know, that's where you gotta put your money where your mouth is. We had one uh, person who had just gotten out of jail and we, we did his scans and he had some trauma. Okay, and there was some past drug use, which can cause like perfusion problems kind of over the whole surface. And we did a Zoom call like we're doing now. And I said, well, I said, I want the patient there, but I want his mom there too. And can you ask if we can have the sheriff come too? So now, and this, I don't know if anyone's done this before. We had patient, parent, and now we have the other side, the sheriff. Right. Coming together. And um, I set and the mental health advocate for the patient. And so we set up the Zoom. I'm on like we're talking now. Uh, the first 10 minutes, it was the mom. It was the patient and the mental health advocate and myself. And we no sooner got on the phone with the four of us talking. And the mother started screaming at the sheriff saying, you guys are dishonest, you know, this is the police department. You've been doing this for years. I'm tired of this. And then the sheriff, understandably, she's defending herself. So now you've got two people going at it. And it's like, I'm into this five minutes. I go, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's like, I feel like I'm watching. I don't, you name the station. I'm not picking any because I don't care, but you know, any of our big cable stations, it's like, let's create the disharmony. And we had it. And I'm like, where is this going to go now? That said, patient comes in and I went over the pictures a little bit more slowly than we just did. I said, here's your brain. Here's what it could be. Here's what we need to do. By the time we were done with that conversation, the mother and the sheriff were talking about how they could find 
their son and this past inmate a job at an auto shop. (laughs) Working together as one to help make our world a better place. We went from one extreme to another within a within 45 minutes. And it was all about just talking about science and healing. Yes. Do we as Americans, okay, um, where we have the opportunity to be innovative and my perspective, bring about hope at a much more scientifically and understandable manner to our country and hopefully to the world. Yes, and we're, it's clear we have the we have the ingredients. You you've so what happened with his brain? Did you is he working in the auto shop? He is looking. For, the last I know, he's working for a job. In fact, I've got to talk to uh, the mental health advocate to see where it's at. Um, the sheriff, by the way, bought him the supplements for his oh. brain. The sheriff out of her pocket <laughs> bought the supplements um, for his brain. Now, where he's at. I, right now, I can't tell you. I'll, I'll know after this weekend uh, after I talk to the, the mental health advocate. But the bottom line is this. Even if the, person's, if the person's where we want, fantastic. If they're not at where they're at, that's fine. Let's continue to implement, be creative, to come up with the, the solutions we need to help these individuals. Um, we roll up our sleeves. We work hard. That's how you and I practice hope, by the way. Okay, and use our relationships um, to bring things and make this world a better place. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, a biofeedback, great. Um, I don't want to get into an argument about hyperbaric versus biofeedback. I don't know. Right. But let's right. let's look at both. How, what's the data show? We The numbers don't lie, right? We look at the numbers. What's the cost? Because that's part of the piece of the puzzle too. Yes. And then let's figure out some ways to make it happen. Yes. I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm, yeah. I'm, I've got the flag. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. So, but it takes people who are willing to put my perspective, um, their, their mouth and money together. Um, yes. This work up in Houston or in, in Rico County, um, it took some sacrifice, time sacrifice and cost sacrifice to me. I've been grateful. I mean, life's been good to me. Uh, should I not want to give back in some level uh, to make our society a better place? Well, and I yes. think, yes. And I think you and Dr. Amen and the, and all neuroscientists basically have the key to, to one of the, the crucial elements. And you talk about this, having a healthy brain. Yeah. That's, that's what we need here. And we have evidence of, of injured brains throughout our society. So not everyone in prison can get a spec scan, can afford, I would say no one in prison can afford a spec scan. No one in prison can afford those supplements. So um, I read your book, Escape, Rehab Your Brain to Stay Out of the Legal System. And you offer some advice um, for four things that I can real that I really think are, are powerful. And um, I'd like you to maybe I'll, I'll list them and you can tell us why that's an important thing, if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, one, there, there are five things um, that okay. if you do, 
um, the likelihood of you going back, it's, it's virtually nil. It's common sense, but when you start looking at the five things, it's back to the implementation piece. It's challenging. It's not easy. Like one is sobriety, okay? Staying away from drugs or alcohol. Why do we stay away from drugs and alcohol? Because if your frontal lobes start having problems, your judgment goes down. It's hard. Two is socially. Who are your friends? Who do you hang out with? It gets back to what we were talking about with hope, right? And finding the who's, the people that are going to inspire us and move us uh, to a completely different level in life. We, we all need people like that. You need people like that. I know I need people like that. Um, uh, and it doesn't mean they ha- all, all have to be that way. You know, I was talking to someone earlier today uh, about their child, and this is a Hollywood kid. And um, this person has probably, you know, 90% of the people are partying, doing drugs, etc. Uh, so I'd put them at like a three to five range, but she has no 10. So you're not going to get rid of all these people, but you want to get some tens, people who inspire you to live life at a higher level. So the social piece becomes big scheduling. Yes. That's one of them. I really want to talk about. Why is that important? Okay. So one, if I can get my brain up first of all, this will help. All right. When we're like, when we're talking right now, our whole cortex is shooting off. Everything's going off. We, we're listening, we're seeing, we're, we're trying to understand, we're thinking about what we're going to say next, we're empathizing. We need everything going. When we're not doing much of anything, all right, like just watching TV, playing video games, all right, our brain starts to shut down. And sort of the scientific word is we go into default mode network, which is a fancy word of saying there's a small area in the front of our brain that's in about maybe half an inch called the anterior cingulate that fires. And a part in the back called the posterior cingulate and precuneus that fires. And so now all of a sudden, rather than having a whole brain work, these two areas start to shoot off. Now, when that happens, what occurs? One is we use less energy, so our brain's happy, um, but our mind tends to wander. You know, what is a wander? Wanders to, you know, anxiety thoughts, catastrophic thoughts. What if this happens? What if that happens? And it wanders to more negative, depressive thoughts. Okay. Our brain goes back to its routine way of behaving. Now, if you're a substance abuser, right? Um, our, it's, it's weird, but our brain lear- learning, we find associations and our brain starts to pick up on things. So, for example, if you're in a room and you're just watching TV and all of a sudden you see a scene where two people are, are like, let's see, see an old episode of Cheers, having a cheer, uh, your brain might say, hey, that reminds me of a time when I drank. And so it sends a message to our pleasure center, the nucleus of Cubans. You don't have to remember that name if you're not a scientist, but it starts firing. And all of a sudden we got urges to drink. If our brain shut down and everything's not working, the likelihood of going back to the liquor cabinet and dragging something out, it goes way up. If this is working on full cylinders, it's less likely to happen. Now, you know, how do you, when you say schedule, how do you implement a schedule? I, I start simple, you know, break your day into thirds, morning, afternoon, and evening, and just make sure you have one wellness constructive activity for each time slot. 
that lasts about 60 minutes. No, I didn't say fill up every hour. That would be insane. Who does that? But one hour, morning, afternoon, and evening, and that's challenging. But it'll keep this thing working on full cylinders so you're less apt to make poor choices. Can I ask you a question? Because this is this is kind of what I've been learning as I go along is that being in a group setting is really good to help rewire the brain. And what you're saying, and I never even understood the science, but I just got it from what you're saying is we're here talking and you're saying our whole brain is fired up. So if we're in a group setting, our brain is fired up and our anterior cingulate and our posterior cingulate are not, are not the default mode network is not going on. They're, they're working, but, it, but everything's going. Right. You've got the whole brain working in service of you. So yeah, groups that's, and especially if it's a, if it's a positive constructive group. Yes. Yeah. So I want to show you a t-shirt we just made. Um, it's based on what I learned from Dr. Bruce Perry and it's get to the cortex. And um, I like it. Yeah. I'll send you one. Yeah. Send me it. <laughs> I like it. It's almost like when I saw that, be like, like get to the, the cap core and then hyphen text. Oh, like cortex. <laughs> like yeah. core or like just, yeah, or Gore-Tex too, but the core, the core is. Yeah. yeah. Send me a shirt. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's um, one of the messages I, I keep hounding in this series that we're creating just to let's just stay in the cortex. But you're, you know, we're talking about really getting being in conversation is was one of the one of the things that we can do to heal our brain. Is that correct? Positively. No, it's positively. I mean, and when you think about it, it it's 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 kind of crazy how many minute well how minimal times people have that these days. You know, uh, Dr. John Maxwell, he's a big leadership guru, talks about transformation tables and how you get people together and ask the right questions. And it's amazing just by asking the right questions. My foundation, uh, Faber and Youth Foundation, we meet with the youth, 20 to 30. They're not like a young, but they're youth. And when you start to have real conversations based on secure attachments, there's another big buzzword. That's yes. a whole nother conversation. They want to come back. People are thirsting for real, honest, uh, trust-bound conversations, stripped from the social media, the likes and dislikes and all the rest. Uh, people are thirsting for connections. So back to your group and what happens to your brain. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes, um, you, you just brought up John Maxwell and he, there's a quote from your book that I just loved. It says, you teach people how to treat you, which I, I think is so correct because, and, you know, until you know that you are a, a great human, people are going to treat you that way. So it's really, it's almost like you have to pretend. You know. Okay. Now, yes. And what you were talking about earlier, about all these other things that happen to people behind the 10 things in the adverse child experiences, how you want your mind gets wired from the relationships you have with mom and dad, because our brains work just to keep us to survive. Exactly. Now, if you're taught, if you're at home and there's a conflict and you bring that up with your dad and he starts screaming and he hits you, 
You might say, well, just make amends, make peace. What do we do? We treat, we, we're now taught with other people, just make peace with everybody when that might not necessarily be the best thing, if, especially if the other person is abusive. Um, but you need systems to help recircuit brain to do that. And the beauty is even with attachments, secure attachments, you know, there's studies on now, two years of, of training, you can start to see some pretty marked changes. Really? I, I didn't know this. I'm... Read like attached, awesome book by Levine and Heller. Okay. Uh, they talk about attachments, secure attachments, which are where, for simplicity's sake, you've got a person, another person, they find value with each other and they know how to solve conflicts. They can feel close. Only 50% of the people in this country have that. Yeah. Yes. That's insane. The other 50% have insecure attachments. So they're either anxious. Whenever there's a conflict, oh, just hurry up, try to solve the problem. Or you're avoided. Oh, that's your problem. You know, you deal with it on yourself, um, which may be how you had to deal with it growing up. But once you're an adult, um, it doesn't work that well. Why is the divorce rate 50%? You know, it's because the insecure attachments get together. Um, I don't know. I don't have that. But, but back to your point, you know, with the teach, what do we, how do we teach others to treat us? Yes. A lot of these, we don't even know. We need right. people to help us become more aware. Yes. And, and I, you know, with, with people in prison, their developmental needs were never met. And it's almost like we have to reparent people in prison. And um, that's what I had to do with myself. Once I learned I was traumatized, I had to reparent myself. Um, but my son remarked today, he says, you're not freaking out in, in the kitchen anymore, mom. And, you know, he will, he'd spill something and be like, okay, you spilled something. But uh, once upon a time, I was outraged for no good reason. and. And you probably didn't even know. No, I didn't. It just happens. And, but then I started watching. As I started, once I was aware, I started watching what it was like, oh, wait, I did that. And, but it's, it's almost like I'm a different person since I've been healing. It's, it's a whole nother experience. So um, back to your list, we have three of them. Um, yeah, three of them. And then we're kind of touching on self-esteem. Right. I mean, all this, what we're talking about with, you know, how we teach people to treat us, this all gets back to that. Uh, and then the last one is self-improvement. And uh, I think this one, um, and it, this is for everyone, period. Uh, it's like we get done, um, and I'll just use myself as an example. I'm done with my residency. You've had you know, for me, six, seven years of NCO, oh, I'm done. I'm graduated. I know everything I need to know. Uh, really? <laughs> I mean, and then Harvard Business Review came out with an article saying, hey, if you haven't kept up with the literature over five years, you're behind times. Now, right. that's just with your profession. What about your personhood? I mean, it's insane. It's like, are there opportunities for me to learn how to connect better? Are there opportunities? And you can ask yourself this who's ever listening. Are there better ways for me to learn how to set goals? Do I need to learn more and understand more about how to be mentally tough? Do I need strengths and skill sets and resilience? 
Who taught this in school to us? Who did our parents? My parents were too busy. They were bad people, but they never were able to do this. But even if they went, when we were 21 or 22 years old, the opportunities to grow and develop and become incredibly more resilient, bright, creative, tough-minded, you name the word person, are there. The books and the literature are abundant. And you can buy a book for 10 bucks. And it's like, oh my gosh, if you learn how to process, just journal and incorporate. You, it's amazing what you can do. And not just after a year or two years, I'm talking about just doing one book after another, after another. Most people start one, finish, and they're done. Hell, have three more ready to go. And it's amazing what can happen. Our, our people out of prison, they need the same thing. If they're having a hard time with reading, well, then we'll do audio books um, right. or do films or something else. Right. Uh, and then start to ask what I call process questions to help grow. Uh, what are process questions? I mean, there's lots of different ways you can do this. Probably the simplest is one, after you read um, a page, two page, a chapter, you ask yourself three questions. The questions you don't ask is this, and this is what most of us have learned. Well, I just read a chapter, you know, three chapter. What was the main point? I'll write a paragraph about that. What were the three sub points? I'll write a, you know, a little paragraph about that. And I'm done. Well, not really. Because unless you take that information from the book, put maybe some here, but more importantly, here in your heart, that's where the rubber hits the road. So um, an easy way to start off is just ask, one, from what I just read, what resonated with me? What did I like? Two, from what I just read, what didn't resonate with me? In fact, you could be so bold to say, what pissed me off? You don't have to agree with everything somebody says. You have a right to verbally not attack the book or yourself or anyone else, but to say, this doesn't make sense. I disagree. And then three, from what I just read, what can I practice, actually do over the next six hours? And you play with it in your life for six hours and then reevaluate if it was helpful or not. If it wasn't helpful, don't use it. But if it was helpful, keep that skill set. So you're actually starting to practice, incorporate what's in the book uh, into your life. Yeah, I mean, I thought you were talking about just a, a novel and I was like, wow, it was, but I understand it's like a self-help book. Just if there's some valuable, can, yeah. Half the people pick, I mean, people come up to me. All the, you know, the, I, I don't know how to find purpose. You know, what's the meaning? And so you have ready to go uh, resources like The Radical Leap, Steve Farber, awesome book on purpose. Uh, the Charge by Brandon Burchard, great book. How do you discover purpose? So you've got things that are available and preferably from my perspective that I've read to give them because I know the, the stuff that really, at least for me, hits and it usually hits them. And then that leads for great stepping points uh, to talk. Um, Hope Rising by uh, Gwyn and Hellman. I mean, oh my gosh. You talk about a, a, a book that could, could take this country, I think, in the world to a better place. It's huge. It's huge. Um, but you have to do something with the material. Yes. And the questions help you start to, to do something with it. 
I like that you said audiobook too, because there are a lot of people in prison. The problem is they don't have access to audiobooks. So that's just another one of those things we have to start really looking at is is what what are we actually providing to allow them to grow and and flourish. Yeah. And learn. Yeah. You know, what are their ways to learn and, and then um, and help them. Uh, everyone's a person. Everyone's got a story, you know, yes. it would behoove us to understand uh, the story and uh, help make a difference. I had a situation. In fact, I'm writing another book right now and I put this in a chapter, but when the whole COVID started, um, mm -hmm. a good friend of mine called up and said, Hey, uh, why don't you tune in to this internet and watch this sermon? I think you'll really like it. And so I said, well, thanks for telling me that. And so later, this was like a Saturday, I drove past Santa Monica Boulevard and about probably four blocks from where I live. And I'm close to a very nice part, part of LA. There are all homeless out there. They had Coleman tents. They're all stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh. I go, I've never seen this ever. So I drove past later that uh, day, and there was a few more tents. Uh, Sunday morning, I got up and I went down to get a uh, tea, and there was all this garbage in front of one of the tents. And I, I drove down to get tea. I said, you know, it just kind of sat there with me. And I said, you know, I got to do something. It's like I got home. I said, well, what do I want to do? I go, I can go online, and no offense for the spiritual because I'm spiritual, and listen to this nice sermon, uh, sing some nice songs, or dot, dot, dot. I'm going down to help the homeless. What do I do? I mean, there's going to be guns, maybe, knives. Uh, who knows? You know, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, I'm going down to help the homeless. So I got in my car, and I drove down. I parked maybe two blocks away. And, um, you know, uh, my approach was, is, I'll give them some pastries. It was Mother's Day. And I'll give them some plastic bags. If you want to clean up, you know, you can do it. So um, I got down there and there was the tent with all the garbage. And there's these like uh, weed eater and all these like brass nuts. And I go, whatever they got this stuff, you know. Hmm. But I said, oh, hi, you know, I, I'm from Midwest initially. Uh, I'm Jay, you know, got all the G-Shocks. Nice to meet you. Hey, who owns this town? I'm just kind of curious. And this woman comes out. And uh, she says, well, this is my tent. I go, well, my name's Jay. I live up the street. Welcome to our neighborhood. Um, I thought I would come down and uh, brought you some pastries. Happy Mother's Day and some bags in case you want to clean up. I go, the police, I'm kind of afraid. And I got that out. And all of a sudden, you can take those mother effing you know what and stick them up your effing you know what. I'm not picking up you mother blah, blah, blah. Who do you think you are? Uh, and I, she goes, you don't know what's going on here. My boyfriend left me this morning. He took my bike. He took my money. I don't have mother effing, you know what? And so she's screaming at me. And I'm like, going, oh, my God. I go, what do I do? <laughs> and so she's yelling. Took out my wallet. Took out two 20s. She stopped screaming for a second. And I said, here, this is for you. And I got, this is powerful. So all of a sudden, her tears started coming. I got to bite my lips. You know, it's like just pain. And I go, I got to be strong here. And I can't let this show. And so um, she's in tears crying. 
And, and when she's crying and she slowed down, I said, listen, now this is just my style is you've heard me speak my language in my world. Now I'm going to speak my language in your world. And I said, I'm going to tell you something right now. I go, that money is your money. And if that mother effing D-head <laughs> shows his effing you-know-what up here, you don't have mother blah, blah, blah. I go, you put that or hide that wherever you want. But this is your money, and this is your mother's day. And she, I go, now, does that make sense? She goes, yeah. I said, listen. I go, I got to go back to my house. I'm going to join by later just to make sure you're okay. All right. And so I go back two hours later and everything's cleaned up. <laughs> All the bags on the side and everything's cleaned up. Now, my point is, is this is like, man, I go, I was like in a revolutionary to me learning experience. I mean, I, I didn't know half this stuff went on. And the problem is, with all of us is we don't know, but we need to get in there and figure out what the opportunities were. And my thought was, what is her need? I go, she needs some cash. I go, she's with a dysfunctional boyfriend who's probably doing drugs, who has a anxious attachment style and look at where he's got her. Yes. So let's get to the basics gang and try to help people out. That's what I say. If you see something, do something. And that's what you did. That's what you did. We don't give them just a handout, you know, no offense against the government. We don't just give them a platitude. Here's our no program. No, we give them caring and we give them concern and we give them unconditional acceptance. Yes. And when you do that, that's when we start to see change. So back to self-improvement. This is what we got to, this is how I got to do it. We got to, if we don't do it, how are we going to help other people do it? And so anyhow, that's the final one in the book. Um, the book, by the way, people are, you know, it will say, well, how much does it cost? Um, you, you go to my website and download it for free. Um, I wrote this book specifically for the people who can't afford it. And uh, the stories include anyone from Michael Jackson to Elon Musk to uh, EMDM star Avicii, who unfortunately passed away. But I wanted to make it cool and trendy, but simultaneously put a significant bite to help inspire people uh, to live life at a place they never thought possible. It's amazing. And I'm also wondering, do you, do you have any brain scans or any information about what meditation does to the brain? There's not much data or research on it, but um, we've done a number of before and after meditation scans. So anecdotally, areas of the brain that calm down are often like the basal ganglia, which if those are getting a lot of blood flow, we get more anxious. Those tend to really really calm down. And then second, our anterior cingulate cortex, which is in the front of our brain, about probably half inch in. If that's really active, we see higher association with uh, depression, sadness, tearfulness. Um, before and after scans, anecdotally, we've seen that calm down uh, as well. So that's general findings. I don't have any, like I love data. You know, here's a whole bunch of people before and after, and you can you can come up with a much firmer conclusion than I'm giving you right now. 
So nothing on the spec scans that we can see that meditation has helped smooth those craters. Well, we see, oh, you mean on the surface of the brain? Yeah. What we, in terms of the surface, we haven't seen much, okay, in terms of data. So I couldn't tell you as much on the surface, but below surface on the specs where we get increased blood flow to our basal ganglia before and after we've seen those get much more calm and our anterior cingulate much more calm. But saying that, you know, we haven't done any before and after meditation scans. Um, we've had people, interestingly, there was a group from Brazil who had come into our uh, office when I was in Atlanta uh, and they had done a number of uh, scans right after they had meditated. And uh, it was like markedly, I mean, like the basal ganglia and anterior singlet, you couldn't even see them. I mean, there's less, less, that much less blood flow to them. Their thalamus, we don't know why it was really active, um, which we normally see higher levels of depression. But, you know, again, this is where we've got a lot more to learn about scans. So, but what, what, what I'm hearing is that meditation can help the brain, the physio physical part of the brain, lower in depression and, and tearfulness. And, yeah. And so anecdotally, the way I would word this is anecdotally, that appears to be the case, um, which then you'd say, okay, well, if we've got some cases or several or a lot more cases showing that, then it'd be a good idea to do a, a study you know, and back it up with some strong data to make sure. So uh, I'm just kind of letting the audience know uh, this is where it's at. And by the way, this is where we need to start communicating better, I think, anyhow, uh, because if we don't have the clarity and accuracy of the data, we want to be straightforward about it and honest. And so for those out there, anecdotal you know, reports, it's just like people one by one by one, they, you see the before and afters and you can see a difference, um, which is good, but you really want to say, okay, let's get a bunch of people and right. look at them together to make sure what we're seeing is, is coinciding um, with that um, as but, well. But still, this is important information because we need all the tools that we can muster. Yeah. Now, whether the specs show it or not, there are studies showing meditation is very important in calming the brain. I mean, if you look at, say, like Navy SEALs, I'll, I'll give a case in point and I'll give a book. Mark Devine, who wrote Way of the Seal, uh, which is a book that teaches you how to think like Navy SEALs, probably 75% of the skills in that book are meditation. Wow. Yeah. And so it's like, you think about it, you got these like manly men, you know, out in the middle of Afghanistan with, you know, people literally with gunpoints from three sides or maybe more for four or five days, if not longer. And what are they learning? Uh, to think more accurately and stay calm and make good decisions. You meditate. Yes. Which is kind of crazy. When you think and, about it. and I also wonder what it would do, what it does for PTSD, because that's what all those men are facing when they go out. And no, I mean, I think that's a great question. Now, I think one of the thing um, with the meditation piece with that group, and again, I think this needs some more clarity is the meditation helps calm things down. But if you're to just do deep breathing, breathe in, out, in, out, and just focus on your breath, 
what happens to those individuals who've been around a lot of trauma and might be more hypervigilant is just focusing on breathing or not uh, in and out enough, or do they need some more focused thought techniques to help abate those um, invasive and um, very sometimes traumatic memories. I, I talked to a first responder who worked for the fire department uh, yesterday, in fact. And I said, well, what's one of the biggest challenges? He said, hypervigilance. So hypervigilance where you're just more aware. He says, listen, I'd go into a restaurant with my family and it's like, you know, I'd be sitting down and you think we'd be worried about, you know, if we're going to order, you know, the, the, the side of salads, you know, if we're going to think healthy, or if you're not going to think as healthy, the fries with the hamburger. And he said, I'd go in there and I'd be looking at people, you know, wondering if someone's going to have a heart attack, whether there's a fire that's going to come out of the kitchen. Um, he says, it's crazy, but because you've been exposed to all this, you just become hyper aware. And, you, and there's got to be some ways to help calm that down. And I go, that's sort of an interesting concept because I haven't seen much on that. And I actually learned a few things. It's like, my gosh, if you're on all this stuff all the time, what happens when you go from work to just play? Um, exactly. And- I've talked to correctional officers and they, they have a different view when they go to the restaurant. First of all, they sit at the very back to make sure that there's no one behind them. And then they're worried about, does that person have a gun? Does that have person, is that person going to freak out? So their hypervigilance is a little, has a different tone and different flavor to it, but it's the same, it's the same results from constant, constant, you know, stress. Yeah. So, you know, and and maybe these individuals, I'm just saying maybe the, the meditation with deep breathing, plus having some uh, structured thought patterns or exercises to do with the deep breathing, you know, um, it might be more helpful. Um, the, the Navy SEALs, I can tell you, they've got some structured patterns that they do uh, besides just breathing in and out uh, to try to help. So do other people need it? You know, well, well, time will tell, but if the Navy SEALs need it, probably having some of these might be helpful for others too. Exactly. Exactly. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about in this uh, little catch up? Anything else? No, I think of? this is uh, helpful. You know, I think the hypervigilance piece is going to be interesting to watch. Definitely. Coming years. And I think just with, with the web and, you know, um, all the stuff we see on cable news, um, especially these days, um, you know, or what's been gone before. I mean, do people become more hypervigilant, hypersensitive? And how does that impact how people view, perceive, and then make decisions? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just wanted to touch on death row before we go. Um, in the studies I've read, 100% of the people on death row have traumatic brain injury. And um, 100%. So they all have those crooks and crannies in the brain that you were showing us. Um, there's a, there's a man that I, that writes to me, his name is Brian and he, um, he has life without parole, which is basically the death. This is, it's the modern day death penalty. And his father hit his head with a ball peen hammer whenever he did something wrong when he was a child. And then after not sleeping for five days, 
his girlfriend said she was leaving him and he murdered her and his little baby. Um, the cops came and, and they said, and he said to them, please tell me that was a dream. Please tell me that was a dream. What just happened? And it wasn't a dream and, you know, no sleep, serious TBI, serious traumatic brain injury. And, you know, we have someone and no one knows if they have TBI either. They don't know what that does. And so, you know, I'm, I'm guess I don't really know what my question is, but I'm, I'm thinking about the people on death row. If, if hundred percent of people on death row have traumatic brain injury, um, what do we do about that? How do we, how do we explain to our congressmen and our, our lawmakers about what they're doing? We're murdering people who don't even have control of their brains. Well, I mean, you, a couple of thoughts. One, if I haven't seen that step hundred percent, one, we want to look at numbers. If, if that's the number, it's like, that's, that's huge. All right. That's a huge number too. I think you have to start asking some questions and then methodically put a system in place to see what steps to do as you go down the road. One is, do they have a head trauma? Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to figure out a system to scientifically look at the brain to see if that's the case. Two, if it is the case, do we need to have some kind of intervention to try to heal that head trauma based upon what we know today? All right, will it work? Doesn't work all the time, but it can work. Three, if it works, what do we do in terms of just the death sentence, right? Do we go mm -hmm. back to Congress service saying, here's what this person has done, here are their behaviors, you know? Um, do we, um, you know, at, at, at we're right in society now to say you're free to go? I'm not sure if any of us is there yet to say that, but do we take off the death sentence and then slowly? look at ways to watch and observe to see how that person does um, and, and continues to improve. Um, I think we have to be very methodical uh, uh, and use uh, numbers, data, using honest things that keep us all being honest so that yes. our biases, which are real, don't take over and then have um, real heart to heart questions to say what would next steps be. Um, we keep the politics out, but we keep the data and the numbers in mm -hmm. and use that as a platform to take the slow, methodical, uh, maybe for some boring, but they're very engaging conversations like we're doing now on what we need to do next. Um, the, 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 um, the ideals and the, the polarization has got to go to the side. Um, this is um, like anything in life, if you want to get good at it, you're gonna to have to uh, do some things like put in some commitment, probably not a, fa a famous word these days, but it's true, and some sacrifice to see what makes sense. Absolutely. So that's sort of my answer to it. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for your perspective. And I think, I think those steps are, are, are crucial, are crucial. And just to really clear up um, that's those statistics, it was a, they, they've only done two surveys that I can find. One is with 15, uh, 15 adults and 15 children that were sentenced to death row um, or, 
all no is 100% of the, the this the children that were sentenced to death row but I don't know how many so it's 15 plus another another survey um but still if that's 100% of everyone that was ever tested um we've got some we've got some thinking to do because it isn't the person it's the brain it's and that's, the brain it's the brain um and brain injuries are, are basically destroying our society ptsd um people in prison yeah, I think uh, two, two thoughts kind of mine. Um, Jamie Mustard, yeah. famed author, the economist, we talked about this. And and he says, you know, Jay, this, he calls me Jay, not Dr. Fable, which either way is fine with me. He says, this is like, it's it's a public health problem is what it is. And do we not have a right to do this? Uh, Carrie Sipp, who works with a group called PACE, talks a lot about, yeah, you know, adverse child experiences. And I think she'd be chiming in with this as well is from a public health standpoint, gang, what do we need to do? Um, does this make us maybe feel uncomfortable a little bit or make us think we might have to spend some extra dollars? Maybe, but let's sit at the round table and have a round table discussion to see what makes sense uh, on next steps. Yes, and I would say, the government's not going to come up with money. So I think we have to raise money. We have to find the money and we have to do these, these tests. We have to start, we have to start opening, opening and creating awareness about opening the doors and creating awareness about what's going on in, in the people, people's brains that we've incarcerated. And they're, they can be very dangerous and they need healing, but I would almost, this will sound crazy, but I'd even take it a step further because when you create, you, when you create the awareness in what's going in their brains, you're going to start asking and, and allowing people to ask what's going on with their brains because there's a lot more out there. Like, like we were talking about earlier, you have eight, I have seven adverse experiences. Wow. Um, you know, um, there's, I think there's a lot more darkness and it's going to open up even more opportunities, uh, for wow. the, yeah, it's, cra it's crazy. Not just the, the, the prisoners, but for, for society, for all of us, for all of us, you, you know, how many people, uh, you know, if you look at Hitler, Hitler was abused, Putin was abused, you know, this is, this is unaddressed childhood trauma at its worst. Yeah. All the officers that were uh, under under um, Hitler's care, all abused. And they don't want to take it out on their family, so they take it out on, on society. And that's what's happening. It's misdirected rage. Um, and and it, it's, just, it's destroying thousands and millions of lives. This isn't like sexy or glamorous talk, but it almost begs the question is for the people that are, you know, either in like positions like ours or political positions, you know, what if, I mean, and, and, and what, what if you talked about your own ACE score and what you're doing with it? I mean, it's, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a lot higher than most people than we realize. Uh, and uh, I, I think that would be a great platform to see if people have the character and the strength and the wherewithal to courageously look at another completely world inside themselves and what in Lord's name they're doing to create some order and to create some 
constructive power internally. Yes. If they can't manage that, if I can't manage that, if you can't manage that, why should you and I be seeing patients? Why should we have leaders overseeing others? If you can't manage your own internal home and talk about it, what would and why should I have the common rational sense to believe you're going to be able to do it for larger groups of people. Exactly. And, and, you know, if you're, if you're in a reactive mode, if you haven't looked at these issues, a lot of your decisions are from your brainstem. They're not from the cortex. They're not from a rational um, regulated place. And that's what we need in our leaders. And that's what we need in each other. That's what you and I need to do our work. Um, Otherwise, you know, I'm going to be violent to my child and to my dog and to my husband and to the people I work with. And that's not a world I want to live in. We can either be false perfectionist or genuine and real. And I think right now the internet, um, social media is making us all say, it's too hard to be a perfectionist. <laughs> You're going to get 50% dislikes. You might as well just be yourself. Uh, and enjoy yourself and improve yourself uh, and, and, and enter that process having some fun rather than going through this rigmarole uh, to create a false esteem. It just doesn't work. I agree. Um, I, I just had a quote for, the, for this discussion because it just came to my mind. It's from David R. Hawkins. He says, the savagery that you hold against the world is nothing but a mirror that you hold against yourself. There you go. Yeah. It's a beautiful quote. I know. And we don't have to be savages to ourselves or to each other. Please send me that. That may be going in my next book. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there anything else you want uh, our audience to know or any other tips on what we can do in prison or, you know, people that can't afford all these, all these amazing treatments? Yeah. No, what I would say is this is listen, is, Bring this home to the level you are at. Because if the prison piece isn't hidden yet, I get it. I understand. But I'm willing to bet there's either someone or some person within your family or maybe within you that you're saying, hey, what is going on with this brain? And see that not as something to run away from, but as an opportunity to develop and grow from, especially if it's from yourself. Um, there's just too many, I think, opportunities you're missing if you don't do that. So that would be my last tip. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Faber. It's been an honor and a pleasure to Fritz, talk with you. Fritzy, a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so grateful for my conversation with Dr. Faber. I really think we really explored what's really important and what, our, what is incumbent upon our society to start not just accepting that people have done bad things and locking them up, to see that it's their behavior and it's not that they're bad people. If you enjoyed this podcast, YouTube episode, please like, subscribe, share, and visit our website at CompassionPrisonProject.org. Watch and share, step inside the circle and donate. Thank you again for watching.